ho, ho. Welcome to a holiday-tastic episode of The George Sanders Show. Tying in with uh, Christmas this week, Sean and I will be talking about two films uh, that involve the holiday. We'll be talking about Vincent Minnelli's Meet Me in St. Louis from 1944 and Arnaud de Plechen's, uh 2008 film A Christmas Tale. Uh, we'll also be talking about the career of Judy Garland and uh, picking our Cinema Central Christmas movie. Sean, how's it going? It's going okay. We're doing something different this week. This is the first week we're recording away from each other because uh, I'm in quarantine from my cold. Um, and also, uh, my girlfriend's out of town to visit her family for Christmas, and so I have to stay with my dog 24 hours a day. Um, <laughs> so, we're talking about Christmas. What was, what was the greatest Christmas gift you ever got, Sean? I have no idea. No idea? Really? There's yeah. no memory of like that one, the Red Ryder BB gun that you got. No, I haven't even seen that movie. You've never seen a Christmas story? Nope. Really? Really? That's amazing. I know. Um, it's good. You know, I, it's that's, it, I, that's what I hear. It's worth the hype. My my best Christmas gift was when I was twelve. I think I was. Uh, that's when I got my my first uh, like professional drum kit. Yeah. It was freaking awesome. <laughs> uh, I mean, obviously, it was no surprise because I had to pick it out and all that stuff. But uh, there are pictures of me Christmas morning, like in, with the tree behind me and tons of wrapping paper, and then just me rocking out on the drum kit. It was pretty cool. That, was, uh, that sounds great. It was great. <laughs> well, uh, so, oh, and also, we're going to be listening to a bunch of Christmas music, too. Yeah. Mention that. We listened to uh, Vince Garaldi there uh, for your wife. Who has yeah. a, a a terrible peanuts uh, affliction, which I think I've mentioned before on the show, um, and we'll be listening to Christmas music all the way throughout the show, um, including stuff from the curious Phil Spector Christmas record. <laughs> One of the the greatest Christmas records of all time. It truly, it, it truly is. Well, let's hear a little Christmas music now. Let, this is Judy Garland singing uh, from Meet Me in St. Louis, but she's not singing Meet Me in St. Louis. Or St. Louis. So the movie's called Meet Me in St. Louis, but they sing Meet Me in St. Louis? I mean, how are we pronouncing this movie? Meet Me in St. Louis. There's, uh, there's dialogue in the, in the movie. I know there's about dialogue that. in the movie. But the song... They, they, they address the controversy right away. All right. Fine. They call it St. Louis all through the film. Uh, I, I understand. Except for the guy in the, the cart, the uh, ice guy, ice man. Right. Because he's low class. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> Yourself a merry little Christmas. Make the Yuletide gay. Next year all our troubles will be miles away. Once again. Together 
That was, of course, the great Judy Garland singing Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas from 1944's Meet Me in St. Louis, directed by Vincent Minnelli. Uh, the film uh, takes place in 19, 1903 and into 1904 on the eve of the St. Louis World's Fair, the, uh, the Louisiana Purchase Exposition, and it follows uh, uh, four seasons in the life of the Smith family uh, with... Uh, well, they have one son and three daughters, four daughters, four daughters, four daughters, and their various uh, adventures through the the summer, autumn, winter, and then the spring again. I I love this movie. I love it more and more every time I see it. This is probably like the fifth time that I've seen it, and I was I was not all that hot on it originally. It just seemed kind of kind of like bland and kind of cheesy and just kind of cornball Americana, Norman Rockwell. Rockwell kind of thing but there's so much more to it than that it's just it's just great it's one of my favorite movies did you like it uh yeah this is the second time i've seen it we ran it for metro classics um and i had a very similar experience the first time i saw it, i remember you you know going over the moon for this thing and i went into it with maybe high expectations or something and i watched it and it was fine you know it's uh, I, I had a decent time with it, but it was just a solid three star kind of thing. Um, but then I, upon rewatch, you know, I watched it yesterday, and uh, I liked it a lot more this time. Um, there, there's a lot, lot to chew on, and I, and um, I think it's it's a worthy uh, film musical. I think it's one of the, one of the best. What I like about it, well, there are a lot of things I like about it. Um, we're going to talk about Judy later in the show, uh, but I, I do want to highlight. I mean, I I really think she makes this picture. Like, I think her performance here is uh, is really really fantastic. Like, um, which is another thing that I didn't catch the first time around. Um, I was kind of just like, oh, it's a song and dance thing. She's going to be bubbly and stuff. But her character has so many different shades to it. You know, like she's got. Um, sure, she does these song and dance numbers, but she. You, um, when she beats up, uh, what's his face? Um, John Truitt. The, John Truitt. The, when she, the yeah, boy when next she, door. Yeah. Um, she, like, there's rage in her. Like, she really, like, wallops this guy. Um, and then she also does the, uh, you know, the sad sack stuff really well, too. Um, when she feels like he doesn't love her and, you know, and she thinks that she's, you know, when she finds out that they're going to leave St. Louis and move to New York and stuff. Um, I think this is... And I we'll talk about like I said we'll talk about Judy more, but I think this is uh, pinnacle Judy Garland here. Yeah, I mean it's it's a it's a great example of one of the the great things about her as a performer, and you and you touch on that is she's never really just doing one thing. There's always all of these these like different layers to her performances, and this kind of uh, uh, 
she's so intense as a performer and and she's so great at, at being you know, just nervous and, and uneasy and it's it's just it's fascinating to watch she's like the opposite of a gene kelly gene kelly is just exuberance and yeah you know even when he's like sad gene kelly he's exuberantly sad but, <laughs> but judy garland is is she's so so unique as a performer and and yeah like you say this is one of of the great uh showcases of her as an actress but i i don't know that she gives the best performance in the movie though uh i think it's it's got to be margaret o'brien who's just amazing as the uh the youngest daughter the the five-year-old uh Tootie. Uh, yeah, we're gonna, yeah, uh, I was waiting to open this can of worms. Um, she's, I, I can understand where she's really good and, and we'll highlight the section where I think she's really, really, really good. Um, but, and this is kind of how the character is supposed to be, so I get it, but it is kind of, uh, kind of makes me (laughs) upset. I, I, She's kind of like a oh look at me I'm so cute kind of thing um, which uh, I really dislike. So she she that character rubs me the wrong way through part of this movie. Um, there's the scene where she comes down. Uh, there's a party in the living room and she's supposed to be in bed, but she comes down with her sis- sister and they kind of take over the party um, and Judy and her do a number together and she does a great job in the number. She's, you know, she knows, you know, she can, she can belt it out. She can dance. She can do all that stuff, but she's got this, I'm such a cutesy pie thing going on that I just want to like strangle her. I actually, I actually really like that number because she's so, it's such a, a little girl like thing to do. And she doesn't really like belt out the number. Like she's, she's not a, a professional singer along the lines of like a, like a Shirley Temple or something like that. Like she's really kind of amateurish, especially, you know, standing there dancing next to Judy Garland, and she's well, like constantly yeah, looking but... up to Judy, and and you know she's doing like a, a little little girl version of it, and and she's great at that. Um, but yeah, like the the later scenes in the uh, that that takes place in like the first section of the film, the the summer section. There's like a party before. Like it's like before the school year starts, and then it's in it's in the fall, and then the the winter section that that Tootie really really shines. Yeah, she she gets better as she goes. Um, and for me, you know, we picked this as a as a Christmas movie, but uh, what what hit me the first time and this time, and, and I think is the best stretch in the whole movie is the Halloween section, which is I think it might be my favorite Halloween movie <laughs> like that section where the kids go out and they're burning a bonfire and uh she is tasked with going to the door of the neighbor that everybody is frightened of uh, alone and uh, confronting him uh to me that that thing is just absolutely fantastic and the way that Manelli films it it there's a real sense of like spooky dread to it which is funny coming from this movie that is very light and airy um up to that point you know but it's like it's heavy duty in that i mean that halloween section yeah there's uh something i really noticed this time around is just how how uh kind of morbid the two littlest girls are not not just tootie but also uh agnes the the next youngest daughter they're always talking about like like killing people or oh yeah uh 
you know, knives and, and stabbing people. And they're like, they try and derail the trolley to, to kill dozens of people. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and I, I think, you know, I think that kind of balances out the, the sweetness in the characters, but, uh, but you're right. That, that whole Halloween sequence is, 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 uh, it's probably my second favorite sequence in the film after after the the have yourself a merry little christmas scene and it's it's because Minnelli does it right at the at the the point of view of of the children and what makes Tootie such a fascinating character for me is that she's just she's all there's no distinction between for her between reality and imagination she just is like the 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 epitome of like a, a a creative figure. She just anything that she imagines is real to her. So she's she's caught up in this kind of mythology that the kids create have created around the Halloween ritual, which is that by you know throwing flour on their neighbors, they they kill them, and then that like frees their their spirit for another year. For so the the little kid can you know wander around, and then they get to like burn something. <laughs> Right, which is a really kind of dark uh, uh, tradition, and it's not at all like our Halloween now, where you just like knock on the door and people give you candy. I know it's you know we live in toothless times. I mean it's it's sad. I mean it's 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 it's, sh- it's really shocking when they walk out of the house. You know the family says, "Oh, have you know go have fun. Don't you know don't get into too much trouble." And then you see them walking down the street. Um, and, and there's there's this bonfire, and these kids are like stealing furniture off of people's porches or something, and just yep. like there's just this fire in the streets. And uh, what's really great about it is that it uh, there's no adults around, you know. There's no there's nobody to hold their hands as they go door to door. These kids are thrown out there. Um, they all they all look terrifying. I mean, those homemade costumes are so much scarier than you know stuff you'd get in a store nowadays or something. You know, the, I mean, um, she's supposed to just be uh, she. What is she? She's a she's a ghost. She's like a homeless ghost or something. Yeah. Something um, like that. And but all she has is like this rubber nose on and like a little like charcoal on her face or something. But she she looks really terrifying. Yeah. Um, well, a lot of that is just Margaret O'Brien's eyes. She's just. It's in the it's in the it's in her performance. Well, but the other kids look pretty spooky too. I mean, yeah, um, you know, they're all the 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 shot that really gets me is when the two sisters are are first joining the group and there's the bonfire and all the other kids kind of line up in a row and put their masks over their faces and don't say anything as they approach and it's kind of like this for a minute it's like a standoff before they can you know identify who's who's joining the group. Um, and I mean, it it that part just filmmaking wise seems like it's in a different movie, and not to say that it you know doesn't belong in this movie or whatever, but it feels like ultra contemporary for some reason. It seems it gives me just chills down my spine, um, and I think it's great. Yeah, I, I mean it, it's it 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 hasn't been topped by any slasher movie in terms of the, just kind of creating horror. Yeah, just eeriness. It's just yeah, it's 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 nuts. Um, but so, but that's your second favorite. You prefer the "Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas" part? Yeah, which is which is also really violent because you know they're the the plot of the the second half of the film is that the dad has got a job in New York, so they all have to they're going to have to leave St. Louis and move away. And initially, you know, everyone is against it, and then they come around. And and Tootie's always like been the most excited for it, but on uh, 
on Christmas Eve, it, it starts to like become a reality that they're that they're going to have to leave. And uh, Judy Garland sings her sings her the song, and then at the end of the song, Tootie just freaks out and she runs out in the middle of the night and just. Uh, decapitates all of her snowmen, and and she's just yelling at them like if 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 they can't come to to New York with them, then nobody can have them. She'd rather see them dead than right. have somebody else have them if they're gone. And it's it's really upsetting. Like she she is so upset, and you know maybe it's maybe it's because I am a parent and and have little kids and see how they freak out, but it's uh it's really affecting. And you want to move your kids out of the house they're currently living in? Look what look what you're doing. You're not even learning the lesson of this movie, Sean. Yeah, but but uh, <laughs> I don't live uh, in as awesome a place as St. Louis in 1904. <laughs> yeah, I do. The setting here, and this may be uh, my Disneyland fandom coming through, but you know, um, the opening shots of this movie is they're going down the street, turn of the century, St. Louis. Um, it's just like Main Street USA at Disneyland. Um, I think they modeled it after this movie, didn't they? Well, it's based on Walt Disney's uh, experiences growing up because um, he was born around that era. So they, they may have may have used this as a reference point possibly, but um, he, uh, you know, and also, you know, obviously, you know, this came out 10 years before Disneyland came into being so it could have been in his mind at that point that's very, that's very likely but um but yeah it just it, it it there's that turn of the century charm to it it's all quaint and these these gorgeous houses and stuff um and speaking of the houses what got me this time is um Manelli's direction here like most of this movie takes place in this house and yeah. it's a big huge two-story house multiple bedrooms obviously the family is very large um and the way that he films this in in this house, and the house is like a, another character in the movie because he doesn't. When I saw um, Joss Whedon's Much Ado About Nothing earlier this year, the one thing that irked me about it was he was filming at his house, which is a really cool house. But he would do these shots where he would film like um, you know through a banister or like through you know a transom or something, um, and it really brought attention to not only his house, but also the presence of the camera. But here, Manelli does similar stuff, but it's a lot more subtle. Like he'll film Judy singing, but he'll be outside, you know, through the window um, or filming the living room, but from the stairs leading up to upstairs and stuff, um, which is, it, it makes it less claustrophobic because he's, he's it, you know, he's, he's using very expressive camera work to... Um, so it doesn't feel really stage bound, you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean it, it. It always it always feels cinematic. It never really feels like a like a stage. Um, I do think the the that the spaces are kind of cramped, especially in in the dance sequences where you have you know just like dozens of people in these rooms, and he fills them in in overhead shots, and there's all these really colorful costumes, and and the 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 group dances are are really cool and they're and they're neatly choreographed there's like a square dance and it's like period choreography um but you kind of you kind of feel just how crowded it must be in these rooms and and how kind of hot and sweaty it is there's there's another uh uh Vincent Minnelli movie uh, an adaptation of Madame Bovary 
that has a, a big group dance and like a similar kind of crowded space where like the heroine gets uh, gets to dance and she's dancing and everyone like is getting really hot and sweaty and, and people start to swoon and so what they what they go what they do is like they command the servants to break the windows so they all go through and like shatter all of the glass in this bathroom so they can get air into the the dance floor which is really cool that's pretty cool uh, well but but he makes it claustrophobic when he wants it to be claustrophobic right, is what I'm saying. Right. Cause like if you see something that is set in one location for most of a movie, um, oftentimes it's just, you know, even if the camera doesn't do anything, it's just like the staticness and, and the walls closing in. But there's like the, the, there's the scene. And I was going to say this a minute ago. Um, I think it, it, Halloween accepted. My favorite scene is, um, when after that party, when everybody's gone home, uh, except for um, like, why can't I remember John Truitt, um, who lives next door, and Judy is trying to, you know, seduce him <laughs> um, by, and, getting, and by getting him to help her turn off the lights. Turn off all the lights in the house, and you know, it it's it takes place in it, you know, minutes after this big dance sequence, um, but the house is suddenly like cavernous and empty and dark and. Uh, that scene to me is just wonderfully shot. I mean, it's just incredible. Yeah, the the lighting is great in that as as it kind of dims with as they turn off each each of the lights. Um, and you mentioned the 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 frames, like uh, Minnelli always shooting Judy through like a, a window frame or something. And that's actually something Eliza Minnelli mentions in like the intro to the Blu-ray for the movie. Oh, really? Is that uh, this this movie is where is where Minnelli and, and Judy Garland met and 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 they fell in love and and the way that he films her it's, it's very much of a guy who is in love with with his star and he'll always put her in these frames as kind of like a uh, as like a portrait and and she she looks fantastic in the movie despite really terrible hair <laughs> and and some period costuming that is uh, you know. Yeah. It's a little bit much, you know. Um, she wears that the the one the one dress she wears when she actually beats up Truett, this like blue thing with like tassels on it or something. Yeah, uh, that's, that's not good. But her the, her red dress at the the Christmas party is is fantastic. Oh, it's it's great. Well, the Christmas party, yeah. Um, everybody looks great at the Christmas party. Even you know, um, Grandpa looks fantastic in his uh, yeah. his uh, tuxedo. Sure. Uh, yeah. Probably the the most famous. Uh, musical number is the the trolley song if it's not have yourself a merry little christmas uh how how do you like the the trolley song i think i think it's a it's a really fascinating number it's not much of a song though yeah well music wise i yeah take it or leave it Uh, i really like that scene though um it's you know rear projection um it's the trolley is is packed to the gills with people and um as as a way of you know pushing the narrative forward or, or you know, it, I, I really like how it starts out as this sunny little song. Everybody's, you know, ding, ding, ding goes the trolley. Um, and, but then Judy, when she takes over and sings the second half of the song, she's very melancholy because John Truitt has not made it onto the, the trolley. Well, and well she's, it, while everyone is, it, while the chorus is singing and they're all happy, she's like wandering around all despondent because he's not there. And then she sees him like racing to catch the trolley, and then she joins the song, and she's really happy again. Right. Um, so, so that whole sequence it goes through 
a number of different emotions in, in yeah. one contained, you know, musical moment, which I think is really great, you know, and then, and I love the ending too, where, where she's, you know, she starts on the bottom platform of just getting on and she winds her way all the way to the top, to the front, um, upper deck of this thing. And then, you know, she's singing it and she doesn't realize John Truitt's next to her and then it ends and, and she's all embarrassed, you know, and weirded out by it. I, I think it's, I think it's just great. Yeah. I think, I think her performance not not just like her singing performance, but like her acting performance in that scene is 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 some of her best work in the movie. And I I really like just the long shots that that Manelli does. You know, going back and forth as she wanders around the trolley and she's like all uncomfortable. I I think uh, I think it's I think it's great. I wish the song was a little better, but apparently it was one of Judy Garland's like most popular songs. Like she would oh, always sing it. And big hit. Yeah, I don't really know why, but. <laughs> One thing I kind of uh, that kind of struck me this time around is that that it even though only one section of the film it's like maybe fifteen minutes of the film takes place at Christmas I really do think it's a a perfect Christmas movie because you know Christmas is about Christmas is about family and this movie obviously is about family but it's also about just kind of looking back on the year and it's kind of. Uh, Christmas has always uh, seemed like a melancholy holiday to me. Like it, it takes place at the end of the year, and, and it's snowing. There's not a lot of light, and it just kind of feels like the end of something. And the way that that the Smith family kind of declines from from summer to fall to to the very end with Christmas when they're going to leave St. Louis, it just it kind of gives that that kind of bitterness that that leavens the the kind of Americana sweetness of the film to me. And then attacks on like the the happy ending, which uh, which was not actually what happened in real life. Like the 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 film is based on stories by Sally Benson, which were published in in the New Yorker about her own life, and she was the uh, the Tootie character in actuality. And in in reality, her her dad did move the family to New York before the the St. Louis Exposition, so she never actually got to to see it. Yeah, I, I heard that uh, since this movie was such a hit, they were there were talks of actually um, doing a sequel where it would be the family having actually moved to New York is what I think I read, um, but they never it never happened, which is good is a good thing. <laughs> Clearly, yeah. uh, it's a better as a self contained movie, but um, yeah. yeah. So I mean, well. we'll we'll explore more the the dark side of Christmas with with the next film, but. Uh, I just kind of like that 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 weird kind of arc that the film follows. Like it's not really episodic. Like it, it it really things do get worse and worse and worse. While you know some of them are getting better. Like the 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 older daughter's romance or love lives improve as the family you know leaves town. Well, that's what I was gonna say. Is you know I I don't I, I know what you're saying, but I don't really see it as as a, a, a steady decline because it is. It's a, it's kind of a give and take because yeah, I'm, well, you know, even though they're because they're finding you know the romance, it means the family's going to be breaking apart. Right. No, I, I understand it. Um, that's not necessarily a bad, thing, <laughs> but um, but yeah, uh, and, and I and, and they really do sell the scene um, when the family finds out. Uh, which is it's on Halloween, um, right? Because 
because yeah. they've all come downstairs they're eating ice cream and stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's after Tootie has been injured attempting to derail the trolley. <laughs> right. Um, and and the father. And I would like to give a shout out to um, Leon Ames too, that plays the father Alonzo. Um, yeah, he's he's pretty terrific, and and he's, also he's a, Mary Astor as as the mother doesn't have a really flashy part, but she kind of is like the glue that holds the film together. Well, and the two of them have that wonderful scene together where they kind of do a little duet, and she's playing the piano and he's singing, um, and and there are subtle things that show the the strength and the longevity of their their relationship the two of them in that scene yeah you know and she hands him a piece of cake i think um oh no yeah it's, yeah it's at the end of that scene she hands him a piece of cake and and they just give a little peck to each other you know on the cheek or something and um it just shows that they're there for each other and they support each other um but yeah he is a really thankless role in this movie because I mean, I wouldn't say thankless because he's kind of a, a comedic figure here. But um, you know, the whole family's always against this guy. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, everything he tries to do, and and he's the only one supporting this family. You know, yep. he's um, you know they just they just they're not they don't thank him. No. <laughs> Fathers, you know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the the last note I had was just on like the very final scene where they where they actually do get to to the uh the world's fair and you see like a a shot of them looking at it from uh from across the water as the the exposition kind of lights up and uh that actually reminds me of one of my famous or my favorite uh, really early cinema films it's this uh this really short it was like a minute long film by by Edwin S Porter from 1901 uh filmed at the uh the Pan American Exposition in Buffalo I think in I think in 1900 and 1901. Anyway, it's a it's a slow pan across like the the buildings of the exposition during the daytime, and then like in the middle of the pan, it it dissolves into night, and everything lights up, and it's like this really cool. It looks like a single shot, but uh, it goes from from day to night, and you see mm-hmm. all of the buildings lit up, and it looks it looks just like the the exposition maybe in St. Louis. So. I don't know if if the one was based on the other, but it reminded me of that. Well, it reminded me of Disneyland. Uh, the beginning and end of this movie remind me a lot of Disneyland, and maybe it's because I haven't been there in about eighteen months now, which is like the longest uh, in like the last decade that I haven't been there. Um, but it there's a magic to Disneyland um, when night falls and all the and Main Street USA is is lit up, um, and it it. There's that same kind of fairy tale nostalgic magic is happening at the end of this movie, and it's it's a gorgeous final shot, and the whole family's together and they're they're on the water and they're just looking at it, and it's just it's sumptuous. It's it's just fantastic. Yeah. So with that, that's our discussion of Meet Me in St. Louis. Um, Like we said, we're going to be listening to. some Phil Spector stuff today. Um, yeah, so this is uh, the Crystals with Santa Claus is coming to town. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not help. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. Santa Claus is coming to town. Santa Claus is coming to town. He's checking his watch. He's gonna find out. 
Welcome back to the George Sanders Show. Uh, it's time for some news. And last week we had the uh, unfortunate news. Um, who died? <laughs> uh, just before we started recording last week, we, we learned that Peter O'Toole died. That's right. <laughs> and then between the, the time that we finished recording and when the show posted, we, we learned that Joan Fontaine died. So we didn't get to talk about her last week. Uh, but she's, she was one of my favorites. I knew, I knew she I knew she was, and that's why I wanted to I wanted to talk about it on this show. Um, Do you know she was born in Tokyo? I did. Her that's, her her father was a, a diplomat. Yeah, that's very interesting. I had no idea. Um, yeah, so uh, you know, I really only know I I I think she's great. Um, I actually only have seen uh, the Hitchcocks, uh, Rebecca, and Suspicion, which she made back to back in forty and forty one. Um, and she was she was nominated. Did she win for Suspicion? She won, right? Yeah, she won. She uh, she uh, famously boasted that that she she got married before her sister, and she won an Oscar before her sister, and that she would probably die before her sister. So she would she would just constantly keep winning. <laughs> her, her sister, of course, was Olivia de Havilland, and, and right. she is still alive. Also, she's uh, ninety seven, I think. Yeah, she's she's still kicking. Uh, what's your favorite uh, Joan Fontaine performance? Uh, it's probably a, a Letter from an Unknown Woman, the, the Max Ophels film, uh, which she actually had a hand in, in producing and, and hiring Ophels to direct. And it's it it might be her best movie, though. I do I do love her Hitchcock films, and uh, she's she's got a lot of other movies. I it's weird. Like I I I really like her, but I, it, she's one, she's one of those actors who I don't think had as as productive a career as as they should have. Yeah, like I and I don't know if that's fair, but it I just I wish she was in more movies. No, <laughs> I wish I there you. was more Joan Fontaine to watch because yeah. she's she's so great whenever I see her. But if you haven't seen Letter from an Unknown Woman, definitely do that. Yeah, I need to do that. Have you seen? So how's that Jane Eyre with Orson Welles? Ah, uh, it's okay. Yeah, that's that's what I thought. That's yeah. what I thought. But uh, I'm, I, I, I'm not really, I'm not a, a Bronte kind of guy. Like Wuthering Heights, and Jane Eyre, at least in the 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 Hollywood adaptations of them. Like the, I think it's uh, Laurence Olivier does a, a Wuthering Heights. Uh, I just, yeah, whatever. <laughs> Well, my, my, mean, fav- my favorite Bronte adaptation is uh, is Jacques Tourneur's "I Walked with a Zombie." Uh, my favorite Bronte adaptation is uh, Monty Python's semaphore version of uh, Wuthering Heights, which uh, is it's got to be seen to believe. Wait, got to be seen to be believed. Uh, it's amazing. <laughs> Do you remember that? Do you remember that from the show? Uh, vaguely. Vaguely. Oh, it's, it's great! It's been, they're just been standing on a—they're standing on a uh, you know uh, a windy cliff top, and they're and they're doing semaphore to each other, like oh Heathcliff, and they're holding the the flags. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. <laughs> oh, Monty Python. Anyway, I, I like how we talked about Joan Fontaine. And I just started laughing. Um, yeah. 
She died, and then I tell a Monty Python story. Uh, anyway, she's great, and and TCM is playing a bunch of Peter O'Toole and and Joan Fontaine movies. I think this Friday. I'm not sure. It's it's coming up soon. You can find uh, details on their their website, TCM.com. You should uh, check them out. Doing doing the good stuff there. Yeah. Um, some good news. I mean, we don't. You know, on the show, we we rarely talk about upcoming movies. Um, you know, that there are websites that are dedicated just to like a new trailer's coming out for this next week, or you know, this is scheduled for release in like nine months. Get excited now, or whatever. Um, but I, I, I couldn't let it go this week. Uh, it has been officially confirmed that Paul Rudd will be playing Ant Man in Edgar Wright's uh Marvel film, which uh, I am like so giddy. About I, I can't even express how excited I am. Um, I don't know if I don't know if you saw the test footage that Edgar Wright filmed, Sean, um, no. to get himself the gig. Absolutely uh, not. It's it's awesome. Uh, Ant Man. I think it comes out in like two years. It's gonna be absolutely awesome. And you know, I I don't. I'm not one of those Marvel fanboys. I've only seen. Uh, like three of those Marvel movies, and uh, I could take them or leave them for the most part. But you mix Edgar Wright with a really offbeat comic book character like Ant-Man, and then you get Paul Rudd to play the guy, I'm there. You sold me. How do you feel about Paul Rudd? Do you like Paul Rudd? Everybody likes Paul Rudd. I do. I like Paul Rudd. I've liked Paul Rudd since uh, Clueless. He's great in Clueless. Yeah. He's really great in Clueless. And that's Uh, almost uh, 20 years old now. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, um, I, I have I have no opinion on Ant Man. I like I like Edgar Wright. I like Paul Rudd. I will probably see it when and if it it comes out. I have I have enough movies that have already come out that I want to see that I I try not to to take up time thinking about movies that haven't been released yet. I understand, and that that's what my preamble was all about, you know. Yeah. But uh, you know, it, originally, you know, it, apparently, word on the street, it was going to be between. Uh, Paul Rudd and Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and I don't have anything against Joseph Gordon-Levitt, but you're taking it to a next level if you're putting Paul Rudd in your Marvel movie. I'm, that's all I'm saying. So, I'm looking forward to it. All right. Well, well. Speaking of movies that that already exist, uh, several several months ago, when was it? Around Labor Day, I think. Uh, we we did an episode where we we listed our our hypothetical sight and sound top ten lists. And we asked for uh, for any listeners to to send us theirs. <laughs> and uh, just a, a couple weeks ago, we finally got a listener to submit a, a top ten list to us. So we wanted to uh, to uh, uh, thank uh, thank Brian from the Rupert Pupkin Speaks blog for uh, for contributing his top ten. We'll uh, we'll put a link in the show notes. But he uh, he put together his own. Uh, top 10 list and it's it's really good i've seen nine of the 10 movies on his list and i like them i like them all quite a bit yeah and and you haven't seen over the edge which is uh another uh, usually it's it's me on the show each week that hasn't seen some very important movie but this week we now know you haven't seen a christmas story and you haven't seen over the edge no i i haven't i i'm glad i'm not in the same room with you right now because i would just i'm sorry (laughs) <laughs> I'm, I am uh, woefully unfamiliar with the early work of Matt Dillon. Uh, as I said uh, to you before we, the show started, uh, Over the Edge is based on uh, true stories that occurred 
in my hometown, uh, the town I grew up in, Foster City, California, which when I was growing up there uh, was just a very, you know, normal suburb of a suburb in the Bay Area. Not Nothing too crazy was going on. But apparently in the 70s, the kids of the town took over and, and like, burned down a community center or something like that. So uh, it, it, there's a sense of pride with me and Over the Edge, right? So. I, I don't think I'd ever even heard of the movie before Brian put it on his list. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Well, I've got I've got uh, clippings from the San Francisco Chronicle from the seventies um, from the actual events that took place. So, if you want to, you know, read up on it, I can hook you up. <laughs> well, speaking speaking of things that you've got, yes. What, what's Mike watching? Uh, what's Mike watching this week? Um, I've spent um, the last. I don't know, month or so, um, kind of doing two things. Um, what I'll talk about this week is uh, kind of spurred by my girlfriend. She's much more into the whole Christmas thing, um, as evidenced by the fact that uh, she left me here alone at home to go visit her family for a week. Um, the house is a mess. Uh, you know, I, I don't even know what the smell is that I'm smelling right now. Who knows? It's all in disarray. The whole place is in disarray. Uh, the smoke alarm's been going off for unknown reasons. My dog smells something in the walls. I don't know what's going on. But anyway, she she wanted to gear up for Christmas with some Christmas movies that we hadn't seen before. So uh, we got a whole bunch, and I wanted to talk about two um, that I had never seen before. First one was uh, White Christmas. Uh, with Bing Crosby and Danny Kay uh, and Rosemary Clooney. Uh, it's a solid movie. Uh, you know, I th- I'm not a big Christmas guy. It's hard to get me involved in Christmas stuff and get me excited. Um, but I think the interplay between Bing Crosby and, and Danny Kay is uh, well worth watching. Uh, I think it's, you know, it's a solid entertainment, you know. It's, what do you think about White Christmas? How do you feel? Uh, it's, uh, I like the song. It's another film that I haven't seen. Oh my gosh! <laughs> wow, I'm just knocking them down today. Okay, um, it, it's it's good. It's it, there's there's a really weird scene where um, they do a cabaret performance of the the two women that they're kind of um, attracted to. They kind of cover for them as they they're trying to escape a, a creditor. Um, so they send the women off in a taxi and but they still have this obligation to perform the show, so they do it in drag, Danny Kaye and Bing Crosby. Um, and it is, and I don't mean this as a derogatory thing, it is the gayest thing I have ever seen in my entire life. And Bing Crosby, what's great about it is Bing Crosby cannot keep a straight face, and you can tell that it's not acting on his part. He's just like, he, he can't believe they're doing this. And when you're watching it, you also kind of can't believe that they're doing it. But Danny Kaye just goes for it and it's 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 something to something to be seen actually i, uh, I don't think i've ever seen a, a danny k movie from from start to finish oh really yeah he's very good he was in one with uh gene tierney that i started watching a few years ago but i, I lost interest like halfway through did you you don't like danny k i something just i just i i don't i i don't really have an opinion on him because i haven't really okay. seen anything well, he's he's very good in it. It's 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 definitely worth a watch. Uh, something that's not worth a watch. It was this is a disappointment. Was uh, Rare Exports, uh, a Christmas Tale, which is a Finnish film from a, just a few years ago, and it's it's got a really good premise. It's a it's about kind of the original idea of of Santa Claus, where it comes from, and and kind of being like this folklore, 
and him being more of a the, menacing the, kind of like figure. The, the scary European Santa Claus exactly. that, that goes around the internet every year around this time. It's, yes, that version. Um, and it's about this kid who, um, well, the, the Santa, the real Santa has been trapped in a block of ice like under a mountain for like 300 years or something. Like Encino Man. Yes, exactly. But he, but he's like 40 feet tall and he's got horns and he's terrifying. And so the movie, he's excavated by this, you know, rich industrialist. And basically the whole movie you're expecting, you know, evil 40-foot Santa Claus to go on a rampage and kill everybody. Um, and that's kind of what the movie's setting you up for. But then uh, they just – he hasn't even thought yet. And then they like – and I'm going to spoil it now um, – they just blow up the warehouse where he's being kept, and then the movie's over, and it's it's a real disappointment. So, if that anybody sounds, was, that sounds lame, it's pretty lame. Yeah, it, it had potential, but you know, it just didn't really do it for me. Um, so those that's what's Mike. That's what Mike has been watching. All right, <laughs> let's uh, let's talk about our person of the week, who is uh, Miss Judy Garland. Miss Judy Garland. What what do you think of? of <laughs> Uh, what do I think of Judy? I, I like Judy. Um, I'm not, once again, kind of like Joan Fontaine. I'm not super familiar with Judy's stuff. Um, obviously, The Wizard of Oz I've seen a zillion times, and I, I think she's very, very good in it. Um, I can't really picture anybody else in that role doing it the way that she does it. Um, she really sells the longing of of Dorothy, and uh, you know, it's kind of like what we were saying in our discussion of. Uh, Meet me in St. Louis. She, you know, there, there's range there. She does a, a, a wide range of things um, in these roles that could kind of be perfunctory or, or one note or whatever. Um, Have you ever seen any of her non-musical performances? No. Okay, uh, she's in uh, the year after Meet Me in St. Louis. She did another film with Vincent Minnelli called The Clock, which is a, a really, really neat little romantic movie where uh, she plays a, a woman who uh, Robert Walker meets uh, just as he's uh, on leave for like a day in New York City. And, and they meet and they, they fall in love and they spend the day together and then they're, they're separated by the war. And it's just, it's a really, really sweet little movie. And, and she's great in it. And uh, near, near the end of her career, she's in... Uh, Judgment at Nuremberg, mm-hmm. which is a really, really odd kind of Stanley Kramer movie with an all-star class, uh, cast about uh, war crimes trials at the end of World War II, and she plays a, a witness, and it's a, it's a weird performance because it's got all of that like weird in, that intensity that that's really weird in her musical performances, but it's it's more in fitting with just kind of the heightened uh, everybody's gunning for a, a an Oscar vibe right. of the the Stanley Kramer film, and she's mm-hmm. good, but it's like everyone's trying to be good. So yeah, what's your favorite performance of hers? I don't know. I really, I really do love the pirate, and and she's one of uh, one of the reasons why why I love it so much is uh, that's uh, that's another uh, Vincent Minnelli movie where she plays with uh, with Gene Kelly, and she's like a a girl who uh, who wants to be kidnapped by a pirate so she can have some adventure in her life, and then so 
Gene Kelly, who's a traveling actor, pretends to be a pirate and tries to kidnap her, but then she's she loses interest when she finds out that he's actually just a nice guy. <laughs> you know, that Gene Kelly, he'll yeah. do that to you. Uh, bait, the bait and switch. Yeah, it, I mean, it might it might be that it might be it might be Meet Me in St. Louis, and uh, also A Star Is Born, mm-hmm. which is uh, just a, a fantastic movie as well. Which which kind of it, it has uh, it has the musical numbers, but it also has like this really dramatic arc, and it's it's a a really standard story. I think it's uh, like the third of four or five versions of the story that's been made in Hollywood. But uh, but she's really good in that too. I mean, she's she's so strange as <laughs> as a performer. I yeah. just it, she's she's just fascinating. Uh, what is what is your favorite? Uh, I'm uh, I, I said it earlier. I think Meet Me in St. Louis. I think um, the second viewing of it, it was it was quite a revelation um, to see her and and I I disagree. I think she is the best performance in the movie. Um, on the whole, I, I think uh, she's the catalyst for so much that happens in it. Um, she's got this, I mean, that, like you said, that intensity that is just, no one can compete with it. I mean, it's just, it's incredible. And, um, but she also, the, the joy, like um, in, the, in the finale at the, in the ballroom, you know, when um, that lovely shot when, she, you know, she's she's dancing with her grandfather and they go behind the Christmas tree and then she's suddenly dancing with uh, John Truitt. Yeah, and, it's a sober, and, what a great way to, to stage that oh, scene. Just that, fantastic. That's just great. <laughs> and she's just exuding happiness in that moment. And you buy it, you know, hook, line and sinker. So I think that I think that's the one for me. Yeah, she's she's great. <laughs> well, speaking of uh, the whole theme of this show and and things that are great, uh, there's a wealth of Christmas movies out there. I mean, they they are really a dime a dozen, and uh, they run the gamut. You know, there's I think there's a Tyler Perry Christmas movie out this year. Um, I haven't seen it. I I missed it. You know, I I haven't made it out to the theater to see it yet. But um, every year, there's at least one or two Christmas movies that capitalize on the holiday because they know they'll end up on cable at some point and somehow turn into, you know, perennial uh, fodder for the season. So um, so wading through that stuff, if you had to pick one Christmas movie, which one would you pick to watch every year? Uh, What's well, your cinema central? I, I will pick the one that, that I do watch every year. That is a, a family tradition, and it is A Charlie Brown Christmas. Okay. Speaking of your wife's affliction. Yeah, and you know it's it's not just her. I've I've got a, a peanuts problem myself, but uh, it's actually one of the the ways that I wooed her was with my, <laughs> my, my peanuts knowledge. Uh, anyway, the the Charlie Brown Christmas. It's it's actually it's not my favorite peanut special. I prefer uh, the Great Pumpkin. Yeah, you know, speaking okay, uh, speaking of things people haven't seen, uh, my girlfriend has never seen that. Can you believe that? I cannot. I was I was just. We were talking about it the other day, and, and you, you want to borrow it? I have like five copies of it on. DVD I would love to borrow it because she needs to see it. Yeah, absolutely. But anyway, yes, let's talk about uh, Charlie Brown Christmas. It's I I don't I don't know I don't what can you say about a Charlie Brown Christmas? It's it's such an odd thing to become such a a a, a vital part of the culture, and it still plays every year. You know, almost fifty years after after it was made. Yeah, a decade after Charles Schultz's 
has been dead, you'd still see it on TV mm-hmm. every year. And the the structure of it is is so odd. It's it's about this this little boy that everyone hates, and he's sad at Christmas time because everyone has sold out and cr- Christmas is commercial. And then it ends with uh, another little boy reciting a Bible verse. <laughs> And saying that that is what Christmas is about, and then they magically transform a tree into a, a Christmas tree. It's such a <laughs> it's such a strange thing, and you know the the music is like this this light jazz score mixed with like children's choruses singing uh, Christmas carols, and key yeah. to your heart right there. Yeah, I it's I I it's so great. It's I I love everything about it. <laughs> I haven't seen it since I was a kid, so I you know, I should I should revisit it. But I I think I agree with you. The uh the Great Pumpkin is is for me the best. I love the Charlie Brown Christmas. It's great. What is what is your Cinema Central Christmas pick? Uh my Cinema Central Christmas pick uh is a it's a film starring Jimmy Stewart. Um that you know it, it it's it's kind of the template for a lot of things and uh it's the shop around the corner it's it i i think like i said before i'm not the biggest christmas christmas guy um so i don't need the i i i love it's a wonderful life i really do i think it's great um but to me the shop around the corner when we were talking about the um in Meet Me in St. Louis, like the how it's a Christmas film because it's with the family and and you're just with the family the whole year and it's a, you know being about, it. This is kind of the same thing where it it's a different kind of family. You know, it's the, it's the shop and yes, they the two leads uh, Margaret Sullivan and Jimmy Stewart initially don't like each other. They hate each other, but it, there's this it's it's set in this kind of single location in this gift shop, um, and you really. You're, you're kind of at home with them in this movie. And uh, I, I think it's really sweet. <laughs> yeah, that, that's another one of my favorite movies. Like if, if, uh, if you had picked a, a Charlie Brown Christmas and I had gone second, I would have gone with The Shop Around the Corner. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and actually, the, the, the remake of that is on TCM, I think, right now uh, with Judy Garland, the, the musical remake uh, in the good old summertime. That... Uh, Wait, what's what's the one that? Wait, you've, what's you've, you've got, got mail? Yeah, <laughs> Judy Garland is not in. You've got mail. Oh, okay, I, I who knew? I, I don't know. Um, is Liza in there? I I don't know. I <laughs> I, I haven't seen You've Got Mail. You haven't seen you? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I I missed that one myself. Uh, but yeah, Shop Around the Corner. It's just it's just a a perfect picture. Um, yeah, it's it's. It it uh, if I had to pick like my favorite romantic comedy and I couldn't pick Annie Hall, it would probably be The Shop Around the Corner. Yeah. Well, uh, with that, let's uh, let's hear a little bit of what are we going to listen to? Tying into oh yeah, we're going to listen to the Pogues. Yeah.
That was the Pogues, because we we didn't want to make you listen to French people talking. <laughs> uh, I didn't. I don't have any French Christmas songs. Like I, it would have been more appropriate, but whatever. That's cool. So the second film we're talking about today is A Christmas Tale uh, from 2008 um, from director uh, and writer Arnaud uh, Plachen. I think he co-wrote this, actually. But um, it stars Catherine Deneuve as kind of the matriarch of uh, this dysfunctional family. Um, and she is diagnosed with cancer. And that kind of brings the family together for their first Christmas in a long time. Um, there are three siblings, or three children of, of her and her husband, and one of them, played by Matthew Amalric, is uh, kind of the black sheep. Um, and it's kind of not really known exactly why. At the beginning, we see that the sister wants nothing to do with him. Um, you know, she's like legally <laughs> uh, excused from dealing with him. And so they all come back under this roof and they all have their own kind of issues um, and they're their partners come to and they have children. Um, the, the daughter's child is schizophrenic. And anyway, it's, it's a dysfunctional Christmas. Um, and dysfunctional Christmas and dysfunctional family gatherings are not new to cinema. Uh, <laughs> those things, you know, we're talking about just Christmas movies in general being a dime a dozen. That's like the oldest trick in the book is to is to throw you know a family together and have them uh, argue and all that stuff together. But I think this movie does it better than most any movie I can think of. 
Sean, you've seen this twice now, right? This this wasn't a, a first viewing for you, right? No, no, I saw this uh, back when it came out on on video in in two thousand nine. Okay. How, how do you feel about that? Do you do you feel like this movie really taps into something um, special about that that dynamic that that dysfunctional family get together thing, which we've seen so many so many times before? I I don't know. It, it's a uh, it's an odd movie for me to place. Like I I don't know that it says a lot about like family with a capital F. I think it it's it's it is a, an interesting depiction of a really interesting family with a lot of interesting dynamics and it's an interesting approach to the family but I don't know I don't know how broadly applicable it is and maybe that's just cuz it's not really anything at all like my family. Uh, it's a lot like my family. <laughs> Particularly one side of my family um and I'm not going to get into the specifics of this um, because I don't want to bore people and also I don't like talking about myself. But yeah, uh, my my extended family on one side is, uh, you know, they don't hit the exact same points as, as the people in this movie, but uh, let's say that this thing felt hit really close to home for me. Yeah, this and, is and one so- of the, the rare... It, it might be the only movie that we've we've watched for the show that you gave five stars to on on Letterboxd, other than uh, maybe I, like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Uh, the Grandmaster, I gave uh, five stars to. Yeah. Uh, so but yeah. So yeah, you you really love this. This was I your really, first time. This was your first time watching it. Yep, I've I've been meaning to see it for a long time because I remember at the end of that year, two thousand eight, it making some people's you know top ten lists, and I think uh, our cohort Ryland I think this was his number one movie for that year um so I was intrigued and I'd heard of you know Kings and Queen um his previous film and stuff but uh yeah this this was the first I've been meaning to get around to it but I really responded to this thing um it, it tapped into to so many things that I've been through um at Christmas, you know, in Minnesota seeing my family um and well, so 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 let me ask you which uh which of the uh which of the characters are you? Are you, an, are you? Are you an Elizabeth or are you an Henri? Or are you the the Yvonne? Well, I, I'm more of like um, one of the children because um, I, I feel like I'm of that the that generation and the generation that is at the heart of this movie the 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 siblings, um, the children of Catherine Deneuve's character. Those are like my aunts and uncles. There's a part. Of, there's a line in this movie that echoes something that um, an uncle by marriage um, has said. Um, and and my, my family is very large. My extended family is very large. Um, and he said, <laughs> he said, it's like a family of 10 only children. Um, <laughs> because they get so wrapped up in their own dramas and, and they're so obsessed with the family. Um, and, and they... Like our family is more special than other families, and and it, it's just something. It it's this uh, complex that we tend to have, and luckily I'm only half of this part of the family, so <laughs> I think I can temper it a little bit, and I can. That's why I feel like one of the children because I can watch it from the sidelines and uh, see these things unfolding and being like, "Wow, that's really some crazy behavior that you've got going on right there." So. Yeah, this uh, this movie was like a home video. But I, let's let's talk about the the filmmaking because it's it's a very 
well-made film. Like, I, like um, I wanted to bring up when we talked about Bonfire of the Vanities. Uh, we talked about De Palma's filmmaking style and how he uses split screen and he does all he throws all these bells and whistles in. And De Plechen does the same thing. He does he does a split screen here. He loves irises. I mean, yeah, this movie there's a lot of irises that that don't really make a whole lot of sense, but they're cool to look at. They're just cool to look at. But in here, it's it's not as um, I mean, <laughs> nothing's as flashy as Brian De Palma. So I well, this sure. is nothing nothing new to say, but. Um, but it's it's cool to look at, but it it the story's first and foremost, and it doesn't it doesn't detract from the story. It it heightens it at times. You know, it'll focus the iris will focus in on, um, you know, the lesbian grandma for a second, and and you get her story before it you know opens up, and you see the rest of the family tableau as it were, whatever. Yeah, it makes it it makes it seem more more fairy tale like, and <laughs> and it opens with like a a kind of a, a shadow puppet. Uh, narration of like the background of this family like they they had uh their first son died when he was six years old and it's this this kind of shadow that that hangs over over the whole family and and kind of messes up all of their relations um but it but it's told with these with these shadow puppets and then you know more uh uh uh, the irises for the movie and these really kind of dramatic, you know, shallow focus shots with like the, the the background all blurry as you're looking at like a person in close up or or characters talking directly to the camera mm-hmm. make it seem more more unreal, more more of a, a fairy tale. And then it, it even ends with a uh, with uh, Elizabeth quoting from from the Midsummer Night's Dream the the last lines of that that it's just a, a that you know, if if you've been bothered by this story, just pretend it's all a dream. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, I don't. It, I don't know. That it doesn't like detract from like the drama in the way that like a De Palma thing will, where you stop paying attention to the story because ooh, look, tracking shot. Uh, but it it kind of it adds another layer to to the story. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's it's just you know. Um, accents and, and hints you know that just that just really make it a, a, a very cinematic and, and and yeah storytelling and kind of you know theater is is part of this movie's plot too you know the the everybody's a, almost everybody's a writer in the family um you know even the kids of of uh of what's the uh, third Ivan Ivan yeah Ivan whatever um <laughs> you know they they put on a play um, for the family that they wrote, and the, these kids are like six years old or whatever, you know, and 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 it shows this, you know, uh, and everybody's involved, you know, grandpa plays guitar and and does the narration, and uh, you know, mom comes out and does her little piece and stuff. Um, so performance is a big deal here. Um, yeah, and it's uh, it, it's kind of gradually revealed that it's a, it's a family full of weird geniuses. And, uh, and this time around, like I didn't, I didn't really pick up on this before, but it, it really is a very similar family to that in, in the Royal Tannenbaums, but where, where everyone is kind of an eccentric genius and nobody really gets along. And then, you know, the, the family comes together through, you know, through the, you know, the series of, of events that make up the plot and then they, they go their separate ways and maybe they've learned lessons and maybe they haven't. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, except uh, Desplechin comes at it from the completely opposite direction from the way Wes Anderson does. Like Wes Anderson has his kind of very direct diorama style, where where each character gets a little introduction and you learn all of their background about how and why they're a genius. And it's it's very much about just kind of the the form of this family and and their life and and just kind of the objects that the, that surround them define themselves. Whereas a Christmas Tale, you get kind of get right into like the emotional traumas and the relationships of the characters, and then it's gradually revealed that yeah, they do all of these like weird kind of genius things too. Like the the oldest uh, uh, Elizabeth is is a playwright, and Henri is a, is a producer of plays, and that's how that's supposedly where their their conflict came in. He was putting on her plays, and then the the youngest son is a uh, is a DJ musician mm-hmm. and then their their cousin who who grew up with them is a painter mm-hmm. so there are they're all these kind of artists and like and the father uh <laughs> listens to charles mingus and reads along with the score <laughs> yes which i think is just awesome i totally <laughs> yeah. want to do well, that when i'm an old man <laughs> i mean that dude just kicks ass i mean yeah he's he's i mean everybody I, all the performances here are great um uh, but yeah talking about tenements what and I go on record as 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 despising Wes Anderson and um, and what I, I know what you're saying and I and I, and you're right um, about the connections between the two and this goes to show that all the reasons I don't like Wes Anderson stuff is excised from this movie like the the things the characters do or their their jobs don't really define them so much you know they're. We, as you said, they they tease this out, and we we learn these things um, as they go. But they really don't. Um, they it, don't. It's not like it's not like a title card, like I am an actor, you know, or whatever these right. things. Right. They, they don't externally define them, but that the whole the whole process of creation is is really kind of uh, essential to the way that they think about themselves. And there's there's a line that's repeated that that uh, at least three other characters use in relation to. Uh, uh, in describing their relation with other characters, and it's uh, it's that they are they say that they are invented by the other person. Like the the father says that he's invented by the death of his oldest son. That 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 has come to like define who he is. And uh, and uh, Chiara Mastriani, uh, who plays uh, Yvonne's wife, uh, says that that she def- she invented Yvonne by marrying him. And she's going to invent uh, uh, Simon, who has been in love with her, by not marrying him. Mm-hmm. And then uh, at the end of the film, uh, Elizabeth says that that she now, now that the Christmas has passed, and 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 uh, Catherine Deneuve has had her transplant, things are going to everything is supposedly going to get better. She says that she now lives in the world that her son invented. Mm-hmm. So this this kind of in, invention that that our relations with other people define who we are is is very much a kind of a, a, a dramatic playwriting artist kind of idea. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. But it's it's much uh, it's much it's much subtler than than the Wes Anderson kind of yes. Template. Thank you. <laughs> but, but but it's describing similar kinds of people in a similar kind of world, but in a, yeah. in a very different way. And and you know, Desplechin's uh, camera techniques are 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 no less you know kind of precious than than Wes Anderson's. You just use them a, a little differently. And no, Wes I, Anderson uses irises and and puppets as well. 
Oh, absolutely. And 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 there's a shot of um, you know, it's like a um a downward shot of like a like a playbook or something on a table. I can't remember exactly the the moment in the movie, but it looks straight out of a Wes Anderson thing. And um yeah, the thing and I don't want to keep talking about Wes Anderson here cuz I really like this movie and I don't want to get angry. Um but but um with me and Wes Anderson movies, it's like the quirks and these little tidbits um they are what quote unquote define the character, but then the character never really to me, and this is my disconnection with Wes Anderson movies, the characters never seem real. They seem just like heightened. Um and and it and for me they're like heightened character caricatures, but like for me, this movie, everybody seemed real. They seemed really real <laughs> to me. Um let me ask you this, because we were talking about um Tim Robbins recently on the show and I was talking about how it's hard for me to to get into the movies that he's in just because as an actor he rubs me the wrong way and I have the opposite issue with this film um, and other films uh, with Matthew Amalric in it um, I love that guy <laughs> um, in everything I've ever seen him in and I've seen him in quite a few things now um, and like his character in this movie is a drunk. He's uh, a jerk. He he does really mean things, and he says horrible things to his family. Um, and yet, I I love him anyway. <laughs> How do you feel about his character in this movie? Because I don't know if I if it's just me liking him as an actor, or if you're supposed to feel that way. Uh, I think that you're not supposed to believe anything that he says. Uh, I love Matthew Amarik as an actor as well. I, I love him in everything. He's great in Munich. He's great in in one of the worst James Bond movies ever. He's <laughs> he's always great. Uh, he has he has a great scene with Catherine Deneuve when uh, when he's announced that he's like a match for her bone marrow transplant. So he's going to, you know, do this incredibly risky thing that, so that she can live. And uh, the two of them sit outside and, and share a cigarette. And uh, she says, you know, I never loved you. And he says, yeah, me neither. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, it's funny because, you know, the the kind of catalyst for the whole drama of this movie is that, Elizabeth, the daughter, um, doesn't want anything to do with him. There's something horrible happened in their past that he committed, um, and and she just does not want him in her life at all. And um, and while it's clear through actions that he does and things that he says throughout the movie that he's a very flawed individual. I actually come away disliking her way more than I dislike him because while you can't trust anything he says, you can still there's there there's like a an there's an honesty to the way he like presents himself like he's like he's like I am a total drunk idiot buffoon and that's deal with it kind of thing where she's yeah. a lot more guarded and. Um, cold and distant and um yeah i think i think that she 
I think that she gets him. I think that she understands that he's not serious. Like I think I think Denove also understands that he's not that serious and and she's exactly the same way. Like when she talks to his his girlfriend, it's it's very much the same kind of of, you know, teasing insults at each other that that they don't really mean. You know, they mean the opposite. Oh yeah. Well, yeah, the the, uh, the two of them, uh, Deneuve and, and him, um, it's a very, it's much more playful than it is yeah. with. Even though they say, "I don't love you," or you know, "I never loved you," or you're, you know, the she says to uh, to his girlfriend, um, "I don't mind that you stole my baby because he's not the one I love," or whatever, right. you know, like like that. He's my least favorite. He's my least favorite, or whatever. Yeah. Right, you know, like she uh, does, she, uh, but she doesn't get along with the the Chiara Mastriani character because she married the the son that she does like. Exactly, and uh, and Chiara Mastriani, of course, is, is Catherine Deneuve's daughter with with Marcello Mastriani, but uh, that's not. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh yeah, yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah. She's great in this too. I think um, another great thing about this movie is that you know it it's it it follows these different dynamics between all of these different pairings, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and one of the most revelatory or one of the most interesting dramatically is the one between her and her, um, cousin-in-law. Yeah. Uh, you know, who, who, as you said earlier, is completely in love with her and has been since, um, they first met like 20 years ago or whatever. And, um, and, and they, the, he ends up getting drunk, leaving the house, and she tracks him down in a bar. And they have a very uh, shocking but honest conversation. And then they end up sleeping together. Um, yeah, and it's really sweet. And and even sweeter is is the way that that her husband kind of deals with it. <laughs> yeah, he's just like, oh, because. Because he knew that he loved her, you know, and 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 uh, yeah, he's just like, oh hey, what's up? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I love I love that. Yeah, that that shot the next morning. Their their two kids have have come to to get them for breakfast, and uh, uh, the dad is like, uh, I don't know where your mom is. She's probably in with your with your uncle. And so they go in there, and they're like both in bed naked, and they they wake the mom up, and then you see Yvonne through the door, and he like gives her like a thumbs up or something. <laughs> He's like, "Hey, how's it yeah, going? Yeah. I'll see you in the kitchen or something like yeah. that." Um, so yeah, it's you know, it's French. You yeah, know what I mean? It's, it's, that's it's, that's what it. It's very sweet, though. <laughs> no, it is. It is. Um, and you know, and 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 sweet in a in a unusual kind of way defines you know a lot of the film like the like i said the the interactions with with Amarik and, and Deneuve are really sweet as they tell each other how much they never loved each other or mm-hmm. you know you get the the great scene of them in the in the in the hospital after the transplant when it's like unclear if she's going to to live or die with rejecting the transplant and he's going to flip a coin for her um yeah, I that think, scene is is phenomenal. I think that scene is just great. The way that scene is shot, where they you know they've got the um, the clear uh, kind of curtain between them because she needs to be cordoned off or whatever, um, and and just I mean like we said before, the interplay between the two of them is just is just great. Yeah, and it's you know it's unclear exactly what Elizabeth's problem with with Henri is if it's. Uh, 
if it's actually something that happened in the past, if she's like serious about being mad at him, or if she's just you know taking the joke a step too far. And I'm I'm not really sure. I don't really have a good handle on Elizabeth's character. I know that she's really really worried about her son. Yes, and and the 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 son is is one of the more kind of disturbing elements in the film because he he does have. You know, he apparently has serious mental problems, but but everyone in the family just kind of, they kind of make allowances for him, but they also, you know, steal his drugs. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, and they, they do. There's like these really eerie shots of like the, the son, you know, getting stared at by his reflection, or he has like visions of, of the wolf that supposedly lives in the basement, and it's it's really kind of creepy. And, it is and very unsettling. creepy. And you can see why Elizabeth would be so so concerned what a, but what's so great about the like, well, like i said the, the the seeing these relationships play out with with different you know configurations of two people within this family um the the one moment where it seems like the son has any sort of peace is when he's running with his uncle who elizabeth has completely you know she's she's like stay away from my son but they're they're jogging together post Christmas and uh, he's just treating them like a, a normal kid. Yeah. And, and they're just kind of talking. That's one of the great things about, about Henri's interactions with, with uh, Paul is, is the son's name is he never, he never coddles him. He doesn't walk on, on eggshells around him like the other kids do like, uh, or the other grown ups do. Like at one point uh, Paul uh, says he's going to like, like tag along and help him gather firewood. And he's like, well, I don't need your help. Right. <laughs> what are you doing here? Right. <laughs> and then he steals his drugs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think and, I think my my favorite uh my favorite like little scene in the movie there's a lot that I like about this movie but my favorite thing might be after uh Henri has, has passed out at at Christmas dinner and they they've put him to bed but he's he's woken up at around was like midnight, one o'clock in the yeah. morning or something. And instead of just going downstairs, he climbs out the window and like scales <laughs> down the house and, and finally jumps down to the ground and there is there's his dad standing there taking out the garbage and the dad just looks at him like, What are you doing? Why not just use the stairs? <laughs> and Henri like shrugs his shoulders and then walks into the house. <laughs> Which is I think you're right. That's that scene is so great because not only is it just like hilarious and funny, but um that's the essence of his character right there is He's gonna do everything the hard way, you know. Yeah. He's like just because, like that. He's gonna pick the fight with his uh, brother-in-law. Um, oh, I love that fight! And oh my gosh, that's, just, that's the problem with the the brother-in-law. It's uh, Elizabeth's husband. Is he doesn't get the joke? He's he's way too serious. So when Henri tells him, you know, when they're like having their their uh, discussion about whether Henri should be allowed to like hang around with people and. Uh, and he tells, uh, 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 what is his name? Uh, Claude. Claude. He tells Claude, yeah, but your opinion doesn't matter. And then Claude yeah. just punches him in the face. Yeah. And everyone starts laughing. Even even Elizabeth is laughing at this fight that they're having. And it's it's so great. And, and Claude, like, storms out and he won't stay with the family. And it's all because he he just doesn't get the dynamic of the relations between between these characters. Right. Uh, and uh, he pointedly, he's the one uh, partner that uh, decide that declares that he is not going to stay in that house for Christmas. 
Yeah. You know, all everybody else's partners and children are all under one roof, and he comes and he just says, "I'm not going to deal with this. I'm out of here." Which um, is another <laughs> uh, another thing that is very uh, true to uh, my own personal experiences. <laughs> <laughs> there, there are there are people that just say I'm not going to deal with you guys and your shenanigans. I'm checked out of this, you know, and uh, that's just what happens. So, um, have you so have you seen other uh, Day Plus Shining films? Yeah, I have seen uh, Kings and Queen, which uh, is also a really good movie. It's it stars uh, Emmanuel Davos, who plays uh, Henri's girlfriend here, uh-huh. uh, and she's she's the main character. She's the queen, and. Uh, it's 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 a neat little movie. It's it's like uh, she starts out as as like the uh, the figure that you're identifying with, and it gradually is revealed that she's just kind of a terrible person. Mm. So it, it's pretty fun. Cool. But that's yeah, that, that's all I've seen from from Dave Plushan. and it's been years, so I might be remembering Kings and Queen wrong. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I like yeah. Emmanuel Davos a lot too. She's she's fantastic. There's the women in this movie are are so fantastic. Yeah. Well, and and yeah, the the characters are so rich, and um, you know, it must have been so much fun to play. I mean, I yeah, I I love this movie. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know that it, that it, that it really uh, it was really popular. Like we said, when it came out, it ended up on like a a lot of uh, you know top ten end of the year lists. I don't know that it's really lasted. Uh, Criterion put it out, but. I don't. I don't see it talked about much, but it 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 should be. I think it's. I think it's a really fantastic film. Yeah, I I really I. Well, we're starting it here. We're 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 keeping the fire burning. I'm I'm glad I saw it again. It holds. <laughs> cool. Well, that's our discussion of a Christmas tale. Um, we're gonna listen to uh, some not only Phil Spector produced, but uh, it's actual Phil Spector talking at you here. This is uh, his version of Silent Night. So take it away, little Jewish man. Hello, this is Phil Spector. It is so difficult at this time to say words that would express my feelings about the album to which you have just listened an album that has been in the planning for many, many months. First, let me thank all the people who worked so hard with me in the production of this album and in my endeavor and desire to bring something new and different to the music of Christmas and to the recording industry, which is so much a part of my life. Of course, the biggest thanks goes to you for giving me the opportunity to relate my feelings of Christmas through the music that I love. At this moment, I am very proud of all the artists, and on behalf of all of them, the Crystals, the Ronettes, Darlene Love, Bobby Sox and the Blue Jeans, and myself, may we wish you the very merriest of Christmases and the happiest of New Year's. And thank you so very much for letting us spend this Christmas with you.
All right. Thanks, Phil. Uh, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to need it. Next week on the show, we are. Uh, it's our last show of 2013, and of course, it's end of the year list time, so we're going to take a look back at the year in film, but not 2013. We're going to look at 1933, because that's the way we do things here at the George Sanders Show. Uh, we're each going to watch... Uh, we're gonna watch a couple. We're gonna watch a couple of movies that neither of us have seen before from 1933. We're gonna watch Mae West in I'm No Angel and Yasujiro Ozu's Dragnet Girl. We're also going to pick our favorite films from 1933 and talk a bit about like the actors and performances and screenplays and stuff that we like from that year. So King Kong's gonna sweep it. Absolutely. Uh, well, <laughs> we may have to to make like a duck soup rule or something that we can't talk about it. I know. Yeah, so look for that next week. Uh, if you are in the Vancouver area, you should be very familiar with the Van City Theater. Uh, they've got uh, some awesome uh, programming coming up this week. Uh, playing tomorrow, as we record this, on the, the 23rd of December, is Vincent Minnelli's An American in Paris. Ooh. Uh, one of my favorite Minnelli films. And, and also at the Van City, they're doing the uh, Jacques Demy series, which I think I mentioned when it played in some other part of uh, North America recently. But uh, they've got Lola and Umbrellas of Shoreburg coming up on Monday and Tuesday. Uh, Umbrellas of Shoreburg on Christmas Eve would be pretty awesome. Yeah. Well, it'd be awesome anytime, but yeah, particularly on Christmas Eve. Yeah. Uh, if you're in Seattle, uh, the tradition continues uh, for the 43rd year at the Grand Illusion. Uh, they are running It's a Wonderful Life, which uh, you know is one of the greatest Christmas movies ever. And they're running it uh, through the end of the year, actually. Um, the only day they're not playing it is they are closed on uh, New Year's Eve, but they're open Christmas, 6 p.m., Christmas Day. Go see it at the Grand Illusion. Um, have you ever seen it on the big screen? I have. I saw it. I saw it in Spokane, and it was. I swear, it was like a projected VHS tape. <laughs> That's how Spokane rolls. Yeah, but it. But it was. It was. It was pretty great, nonetheless. Yeah, I've actually never seen it on uh, on the big screen. I, I really should. I should make it there. Um, the Grand Illusion for a couple of years was doing a, a concurrent. Uh, in the evenings, they would. You know, eleven p.m. They would run uh, after running. It's a Wonderful Life all day. They'd run uh, Bad Santa. And uh, I went there one year after uh, working the Metro on, I think, when uh, it was Christmas Eve. We were, I worked a shift at the Metro, and then Ryland, who we talked about earlier in the show, he and I went and saw Bad Santa at 11 p.m. And we got there, and the guy at the Grand Illusion said, oh, you guys work at the Metro? And, he, and we said, yeah. And he let us in for free. And he said, you know, we just had our you know, end of the year the other day, and there's a half keg of beer in the back. And so we just got drunk watching Bad Santa on Christmas Eve. It was great. I've never seen Bad Santa. Oh, my God! <laughs> All right, that, that's our show for this week. Uh, we're not going to listen to George. We're going to listen to another one of my favorite Christmas songs. This is Nat King Cole with The Christmas Song. You're the worst. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Jack Frost nipping at your nose Yuletide carols being sung by a choir And folks dressed up like Eskimos Everybody knows 
a turkey and some mistletoe help to make the season bright tiny tots with eyes all aglow will find it hard to sleep tonight they know that Santa's on his way he's loaded lots of toys and goodies on his sleigh and every mother's child is gonna spy to see if reindeers really know how to fly and so i'm offering this simple phrase to kids from one to ninety-two although it's been said many times many ways may Christmas to Thank you. 